welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Victoria Hillman. And I'm Neil Phillips. Yes, Vic's back. Woo-hoo. I'm back. Um, yeah, just not not, perma- not not permanently at the moment, just stepping in for a couple of episodes uh, while I can. Uh, but good to be back. And this is actually going to be the first of two episodes on spring flowers. And we're going to cover the pasque flower and the snake's head fertility two of my favourite flowers. But first of all, we're going to kick off with our sightings. So Neil, have you got any interesting sightings? Yeah, I've been a bit busy. <laughs> the, the wife's had a few days off work and I've taken advantage of it. I've heard a couple of weeks ago that there's some adders showing well locally. And I think I've been back like four or five, maybe six times. In my defence, six times was take my daughter and a friend's entirely snake mad son. So that was rather lovely. So you've probably seen some of the photos. I also have been spending a bit of time with some bee flies. Uh, that episode went down quite well with everyone, I believe. Well, Erica was on it, so, you know, it would do. Uh, so I've got some lovely footage of bee flies egg laying and all sorts of things and wiggling their bum in the sand, which if you listen to the episode, you'll know why they wiggle their bum in the sand. I had some, quite, I've just keen seeing chiff chaffs everywhere. don't know about you, Vic, if you've noticed more chiff chaffs this year or is it just me being in the right places this year? I don't know. I've I've not been out, so I can't really comment. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, that would, that would sort of sum that up. I've been photographing wood ants and wooden enemies. And today I actually found a site locally, relatively locally, um, for tiger beetles. And it's got full. Yeah, I've been travelling to Surrey and Sussex past years trying to find them. And yeah, I found some half an hour away. And if anyone's tried to, or anyone's seen a tiger beetle, you'll know how skittish and flighty they are. If you get within three foot of them they're gone basically so with a macro lens it's quite hard and i was struggling today like i always did and then i found one right next to the path so slowly crouched down got in closer took a few shots zoomed in mm, that legs is held up right it's interesting going closer going closer mm, there's a fly on top of it yep it was dead <laughs> if you want a cooperative tiger beetle find a dead one but thankfully later on I sort of sussed them out a little bit and yeah I did actually manage to get some shots which will be online by the time you listen to this so go check them out but that's pretty much the summary from me really I've I got within four foot of a kingfisher which <laughs> didn't realise I was there I didn't realise where it was and walked up to the riverbank and looked down it's right in front of me so it's like oh hello they're quite comical and the kingfisher was shouting away la 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 doing the territorial singing then he just cocked his head slightly round clocked me and went oh crikey human and flew off but uh yes don't worry it wasn't nesting there as well i I know the bank well um oh and i saw a funny thing is that kingfisher that didn't see me was about two or three meters where i'd seen a stoat a few hours beforehand so (laughs) i hope it's more alert when the stoat's around yeah not too bad i have to say i've had a good couple of weeks of sightings the best i've had probably in a year so this is lockdown started, put it that way. How are you uh, doing, Vic? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've actually, for various reasons, I've, I've not been out and about. I have actually managed a couple of trips up to my toads this year. So that was a couple of weeks ago now. And numbers were looking really, really good this year. So hopefully nice. it's going to be a really good year for them. Saw a couple of newts as well. Uh, while I was up there. So spent some time with those guys. Actually, the first time I've been up in two years. So it was good to kind of go back and banish some demons as it were then other than that gosh had a few bees in the garden a couple of white-tailed bumblebees flying around quite a lot of wolf spiders in my garden right now they seem to love the slate Mm. chippings we put down when we ripped up decking and you walk up there and they're just everywhere they scatter everywhere so that's been really good a few zebra spiders 
uh, zebra jumping spiders. I have a pasque flower that I planted in my garden. It was actually one that, that I bought and that's flowered really well this year. Uh, and then other than that, um, it's kind of it really. I know there was news a couple of weeks ago of a white-tailed seagull being seen in Froome. That was actually seen, I think, a couple of consecutive days a few weeks ago now. Seen a few cow slips when I've been out. But that's, yeah, that's kind of it really. I've I've actually not been out that much at all. I've pretty much still stayed at home. I, I did meet up with a friend and we, we went to a, a local nature reserve. And what was actually really good is, I mean, we just went for a walk around and a chat and a catch up and, and that. And I actually saw a lot of orchid rosettes this year, which is promising because last year was such a dire year up. So hopefully this year will be much, much better. So it'll be a case of going back in a couple of months' time and seeing how they get on. But other than that, that's really about it. There's still quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've, actually, I've got lots of wolf spiders in my garden at the moment too. How you say it? But, uh, yeah, my red mason bees haven't woken up yet. I think this, I think it looks like a couple of the mud plugs, if you want it, for lack of a better word, that they have on their, their tunnels have broken on a few of them. That's probably a few males have woken up and then this cold snaps it. <laughs> they probably wish they hadn't woken up yet. But, yeah... Yeah, it's been a funny old spring, and it? it's ridiculously high temperatures and then snow. Really, yeah. I mean, really we had strange. we had snow a little bit of snow the other day. My pond's been frozen over a couple of times. Unfortunately, I've actually lost all my frog spawn this year. It's all died, sadly, which is absolutely gutting for me because I much mm. I love my frogs. But the frogs are still hanging around, so that's good. But yeah, it has been a really really strange spring for sure. Well, hopefully, there's a few tadpoles snuck away at the bottom there. They might come up later in the summer when it gets warmer. You never know. You never know. I've had that happen before. My, my pond's really weird. I've got tadpoles at the dust, just hatched stage, tadpoles at the sort of just starting to swim around stage, tadpoles where they've lost the external gills and swimming around. And of course, I saw we <laughs> got there at night time. There's some humongous tadpoles from last year that are, you know, got the half frog shape going on and the back legs going on, but they're. <laughs> An extra half a centimetre long and wide of the normal ones. Just, oh. So they'll come, probably come out as quite big froglets. Just slow slow developers. Yeah, well, you we say that they're going to come out as ginormous froglets, I think. Not quite marsh frog size, but... <laughs> yeah, they probably will, actually. Oh, that's going to be good. Hopefully I'll see them yeah. before they go. I'll go try and photograph them as well. Well, it's been quite a while since we've done any news, so we've got quite a backlog. Uh, we've just we've just missed some of the stuff that's been and gone, but uh, we've got a few news stories for you. We'll start with a a bad news story, which is the story of Freddie the Seal, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Freddie the Seal was rescued by South Essex Wilder Hospital, well, a few, quite a few months ago now, originally, and then released. And then he decided to swim, I think he was released on Sheppey, which is North Kent. He decided to swim up the Thames rather than out and ended up in Barnes in London, where he wowed all the people that were going for their exercise walks and stuff like that. And yeah, he gained quite a local celebrity, shall we say. Unfortunately, a few weeks ago, someone had decided to let their dog off the lead, which, you know, lots of people around seems daft to me anyway, but apparently she didn't realise it was. And the dog attacked Freddie the Seal and... They did manage to, uh, some members of the public did manage to intervene and drag the dog off. And I think there was even a vet there that was helping with the seal. It was brilliant. And then BDMLR, which is uh, British Divers Marine Life Rescue, who are actually a fantastic organisation. They've got little bases all around the country and it's, it's pretty much entirely volunteers as far as I'm aware. Um, and they just rescue sea mammals and stuff like that. They do brilliant, brilliant work. Uh, they managed to get it back to South Essex Wilder Hospital, but they got a vet to look at anything unfortunately its flipper was completely 
destroyed really and the only humane decision was to put the poor thing down so poor old freddie the seal is no more which is desperately sad but as you can imagine there was a lot of angry people so at least one thing might come out of this is hopefully there's a bit more awareness of what your dog can do especially on a beach and where there's seals but wildlife generally um and they did find the owner i think she actually came forward to her credit but i was quite surprised to find that they're not gonna she's not gonna face any criminal charges because apparently what she did wasn't illegal because it wasn't... I think the, the cruelty inflicted by a dog on wildlife has to be on purpose or something like that. And a few people have pointed out the fact that the dog owner was a QC, so the police <laughs> might have been a bit wary to prosecute. But I'm not going to comment on that at all because, you know, by the end of the day, they can't prosecute. They can't prosecute. So, yeah, it, it, apart from, you know, I don't inflict revenge on dog owners and stuff like that. But it also does that send the right message. You know, you let your dog kill a seal and it doesn't matter. Although she's obviously been <laughs> trolled by social media somewhat, which probably is punishment enough, I imagine. But the reason I'm worried about the message is there's been some figures jumping around I've seen, and I haven't been able to confirm them, but figures of 10% increase in dog ownership in the UK, which is works out to be like another million dogs or something absolutely ridiculous. And of course, most of these people won't have ever owned a dog before, won't have a well, you, uh, that's not fair. A lot of them would have done lots of research and stuff like that, but they won't have any experience of how a dog behaves around deer or, you know, they might think their dog's fine because it runs around the park, go walk in the countryside and suddenly it's chasing the sheep and stuff like that and, or flushing the ground nesting birds. But I'm not the only one that's aware of this. If you've been on social media at all and follow any of the Wildlife Trusts, RSPB, National Trust, local councils, all the other things, there has been a massive push that I've never seen before to tell people to keep their dogs under control around wildlife. Every year it's about the sheep, which is, you know, perfectly valid. I've got no problem with whatsoever, but the wildlife seems to get missed out because of the danger of ground nesting birds. I think after last year, a lot of places have actually fenced off ground nesting birds areas to see if that helps as well. So I think it was at Wanstead Flats, they've fenced off the skylark nesting area to see if that helps. So hopefully that's going to help our birds have a good year, despite the fact there's going to be a lot more of us around as we're not going abroad on holiday. So, you know, fingers crossed, but if it doesn't go to plan, it could be, well, there's no other word of it than carnage for our wildlife. Sorry to be Mr. Negative there, but uh, <laughs> to experience <laughs> of, of what it was like before is, uh, is does not bode well. But let's, let's hope people are now more aware and it, it does go well. But we remember we were talking to Stephen Moss last year, we're like, oh, there'd be no one there. It's going to be brilliant for our wildlife. And then by the time we spoke to people in August it was half the Heathland had been on fire and <laughs> all sorts and, of terrible and, stuff and there have already been Heath fires this year as well yeah, no, due I to carelessness as well. as well so oh. please please just be responsible when you're out in nature well, if you're on reserves and that and I bet everyone listening to this podcast already is that's the problem isn't it it's reaching it is, those yeah. people yeah and likewise with the uh, responsible I should have said with the adders I was shooting with my 300 mil, usually the teleconverter on as well. So uh, I was keeping a safe distance, not for me, for the adders, because they're they're trying to build up, they're basking to build up their sperm and egg uh, development, which if they keep getting disturbed, they won't do and they won't breed. And I think females only breed every two or three years, I think. Yeah, every every two or three years they they breed. So it's really important that they're not disturbed. Um, And this is such a crucial time of year for them as well. 
But you've got a much more positive story. I have. And, you know, I have to thank Neil for, for letting me have the two kind of positive stories for my kind of return episode. So thank you, Neil. Um, but this first one's actually on birds as well. Shock, horror. Uh, but it is on puffins. And a new report has put out that puffin numbers have boomed to a 1940s level high on, on Skulkham. It's the highest number of puffins since the 1940s um, have been counted on Skulkham Island off Pembrokeshire. I'm assuming this was actually last year's count. Oh, no, no, this, this is coming in already this year. Oh, coming in already this year. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So a total of 11,245 were spotted on Monday, the 22nd of March, compared to only 8,534 last year from the Wildlife Trust of South and West Wales. So you can tell that I've actually not been on social media at all in the last few months. The seabirds have actually become arriving almost a month early for their annual return to the area, which is interesting. And I have seen reports of, of the puffins arriving. And a similar count is due on nearby Skoma, which recorded 34,796 puffins in 2020, a 44% rise on 2019's figure of 24,108. So it's not entirely clear why the puffin population is increasing now, but the Trust is looking to work with Oxford and Gloucestershire universities to carry out research to investigate why. So hopefully a bit of hope for the decline UK population and I do actually remember reading last year that they had really good numbers of puffins successfully breeding on Skomer's Golcom last year which is is great so hopefully fingers crossed they'll have another big year I mean I think you know last year no one was out on the island but I have already seen people for the little time I've dipped in and out of social media saying that they've already booked to go to Skoma this year so yeah yeah I think we're recording on the 13th and I think yesterday uh, they said, oh, booking's going up tomorrow or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I didn't book for this year. I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll just let everyone else enjoy it for a bit and I might go back in a year or two's time, hopefully. Um, my story is a story that's been around before. I don't know if we mentioned it last time. I don't think we did, but it's about I'm a celebrity rubbish reality show blah 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 blah, which was filmed in wales this year because of all the lockdown restrictions and stuff which is where they get a load of people you've never heard of tell you that they're celebrity oh no that's not true there's usually one or two people you have heard of and loads of people you've never heard of lock them in a castle or in the jungle i think it's usually um and get them to do stuff that involves snakes and rats getting trod on and stuff like that um and then just encouraging this whole you versus nature nonsense attitude which is why i'm not a big fan of it anyway but they were challenged on their use of these animals and they said you know oh no everything was above board you know we made sure that we had all the proper licenses blah 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 blah. so no charges were brought in fact they actually said all the insects used on i'm a celebrity are the non-invasive species but bug life investigated this and if you look at episode five of the series last year, they're using a crayfish, which is quite clearly a Turkish or a narrow, also known as narrow clawed crayfish, probably a better name because it's not just found in Turkey. And that is a highly invasive species. I've got, there's some in the local lake to me and they're doing a lot of damage. It's strictly controlled and you have to have a license to even keep them, let alone do a challenge that they could potentially escape from. Now, Bug Life contacted the Welsh government and DEFRA and they both said they'd had no applications or issued no licenses for this. So they've basically broken the law on this. It, it appears, I should say it appears, to be careful, because no one sees any record of them applying to use an invasive species on the show. And Matt Shardo, who's the CEO of Bug Life, said, In light of these shocking revelations, it is imperative that the police reopen the investigation into potential wildlife crimes committed in North Wales by the makers of I'm a Celebrity. 
So I think he's spot on there. And as he, he goes on to say that invasive species cause billions of pounds worth of damage. And that's just to us, really, if you consider that bit. But the ecosystem damage is arguably even more important because everything depends on these ecosystems. And yeah, I mean, the show's a joke anyway, but unfortunately it gets lots of viewers. Um, and it's been in the news plenty of times for the cruelty issues because it's all well and good saying, oh, we will take every precaution. But if you've got someone crawling through a narrow tube and there's rats and cockroaches in it, well, some of them are inevitably going to get crushed and killed. And is it really necessary? I mean, you can get people to do challenges that don't involve, you know... Live animals. Live animals, you know, to get them eating cooked insects or something like that. It's, you know, it's still... uh, Or maybe put them in, you know, balancing across a tightrope or something like that, rather than, oh, I don't know. But it's just a complete... Programs are a complete waste of space anyway, in my view. But um, I'm a miserable old man, so (laughs) I would say that. But, um, yeah... I think he sums up the program. I think Jim Davison won it once. And yeah, the less said about him, the better in my view. <laughs> but yes, I think Vic's got another partly good and partly not so good story. Yeah, I think this is this is kind of, you know, a, a glimmer of hope, but, you know, work to be done. And this is actually about butterflies. So the UK butterfly monitoring scheme showed that 2020 had the 10th best summer since 1976 for some of our butterfly species and that's after the summer of 2019 which was the seventh best and 2018 was the 15th best. Despite this positive news though 27 of our 58 species still had below average numbers. So brimstone and orange tip had good years and the marbled white continues to expand its range. There's also good news for rarer species uh, that have been subject of conservation efforts. So the large blue had its second best year Duke of Burgundy had its sixth best year and the silver spotted skipper its third best. However, the small pearl bordered fertility had its worst uh, year on record. And about a third of butterfly species assessed in the UK are actually showing long term declines. Now, I do know there was a call out, particularly in this area, I don't know if it was in wider areas, I just saw, saw the news from kind of the southwest, that they were actually looking for volunteers to do butterfly surveying this year in particular to do particular transects and that so you know if it's something you fancy doing if you contact your local butterfly conservation group because although butterfly conservation is is the main group there are local groups as well so you know we have butterfly conservation somerset here and i know I've, i've submitted some very interesting records to them because i actually had a small blue butterfly in my garden last year which is the second year running and i've now planted some specific plants in the hope that it will come back again this year so you know i think i think there's there's some positive news in there but i think there's still more that has to be done and and it will be interesting to see what the the changes in in weather are actually having the effect that they're having on the populations as well yeah it's gonna be i think basically the climate is masking an overall decline is might be uh, something that's going on there so you know we're getting all these wonderful new dragonflies coming whose populations are exploding but some of the other ones are decreasing you know it's shifting baselines again isn't it shifting yeah. baselines over here all the time which is basically where what we remember from our childhood we think is great but actually it was much better if you go back 50 more years and then if you go back 200 years there was wildlife everywhere it's just uh I mean, and I think the important thing to remember is that, you know, and and this is why long-term studies are so important, is that there will be peaks and troughs 
on a yearly basis. So, you know, one year you might get a really good count for a particular butterfly species and next year it might decline, but then the next year it might be up. You get natural peaks and troughs in, in the population numbers anyway, but it's the long-term studies that actually really help uh, help show us what's what's going on and what the trends are. Yeah, exactly. If you have a bad, uh, like, you know, a rainy season when they should be breeding and but for butterflies or something like that, that can knock them back for a year, but then they come back and... I think it's it the holly blue goes through cycles, doesn't it? Because there's a parasitic wasp, of course. Yeah. When you get a booming numbers, the parasitic wasp then has a booming numbers, which knocks the population right back down. But then it gradually recovers, and then it goes through cycles. That's a whole. It's probably a, sort of a predator-prey relationship. I suppose it's a parasite-host relationship, isn't it? Mm. But yes, more like a disease one. But anyway, enough about that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on to some nice, pretty flowers. And I think you're going to start with the pasta flower, aren't you, Vic? I am. And this is actually one of my favourite wildflowers. It's actually one of our, our rarest wildflowers in this country, actually. And we've basically picked four flowers. So we're going to cover two in this episode and we're going to cover two in the next one. So this is part one of two. So I'm going to kick us off with the pasta flower. And believe it or not, there's actually around 40 species in the genus and they're actually members of the buttercup family and this is interesting because there's a, a, a latin word for little flock frog which is ranunculus and that's where the buttercup family gets its name from and weirdly this is when you start looking in, into flowers and that there's some really interesting stuff out there and it's basically because there's a group of plants in the family that grow where you also find frogs so that's how the buttercup family got its name so there we go. Uh, all, all of the species are actually native to meadows and prairies of North America, Europe and Asia. They're actually kind of the tundra plants growing low to the ground in open areas, including rocky outcrops. And particularly like here in the UK, ours tend to grow on chalk grasslands. That's their habitat here. The pasque flower is a stunningly beautiful purple, white and sometimes even pink flower. It can grow up to about 25 centimetres. And obviously life on the prairie and grasslands can be difficult, but by flowering early, the pasque flower can take advantage of the early spring sunshine and that before the surrounding vegetation has a chance to grow. Now, because they, they tend to come out early, so now is, well, they will still be in flower now, um, but generally speaking, they, they tend to flower a little bit earlier. So kind of more end of March, beginning of April. And because they flower early, they've had to evolve several adaptations to take full advantage of this time. So the stems and buds are covered in fine silky hairs and this actually helps to insulate them against the cold. So being an early spring flower, as you know, my poor past flowers actually experienced this year, we do still get frosts at this time of year. So they do need to protect themselves against that. Another adaptation is that the sepals, the green leaf-like structures that enclose the petals, are arranged in such a way that they reflect the sunlight. And this actually helps to increase the temperature in the plant. And they will also track the path of sun, allowing to absorb solar radiation throughout the day. And I've actually seen this with mine in the garden. So the one that I have in, in the garden, it was bought specially, and it is the native species that we have here in the UK. And I've actually seen it, it does, it, it moves with the sun, which is absolutely amazing. And this actually allows them to maintain a higher daytime temperature, and it increases the rate at which seeds develop. And it also provides a really favourable spot for pollinators and also really vital food at, at this time of year as well. So the reproduction of the past flower is actually quite interesting. They do it in a couple of ways. The first is mainly through buds forming daughter rosettes close to the mother plant. And that's generally what we see, particularly on the prairies, that, that's how they do it. And certainly the ones that you normally grow in your garden, that's how they will reproduce as well. But they do actually produce seeds once they flowered. 
but they require perfect habitat conditions to germinate. So they definitely don't make life easy for themselves. The seeds themselves are incredibly interesting structures as they have to get through the tough grasses and into the soil. So the seeds bury themselves by the use of alternating strands of tissue known as an awn. These individual strands vary in their ability to absorb moisture. And as the rains come and go, the awns twist and turn, effectively drilling the seeds into the soil. And the passerfly itself can actually be a very long-lived species, living up to about 50 years in some prime locations. Now, here in the UK, I would say it's possibly one of our most beautiful wildflowers, but it is a rare wildflower in the UK now, and it is actually listed as being vulnerable and is restricted just to few chalk and limestone grasslands in the Cotswolds, Chilterns, East Anglia, and uh, apparently there's also some up in Lincolnshire. It's often found growing in areas with bird's foot trefoil, harebell, horseshoe vetch, um, wild thymes and similar species. The pasque flower will normally bloom around Easter time, hence the name pasque. It's at, and that is actually derived from paschal, meaning of Easter. So in Christian symbolism, the pasque flower is associated with the ideas of rebirth, dignity, nobility and grace. Its purple pigmentation used to be used to stain Easter eggs. So there's a lot of connection there with this flower and Easter. But it's also known as the anemone of Passion Tide and is steeped in legend and folklore across the world. It's a really interesting flower if you sort of little like kind of tip it to go and research some more if you want to. But I'm going to touch on a couple of them because I think a couple of them are interesting. So there is an ancient legend that says the pasque blooms only in places where the blood of Roman and Dane warriors has soaked deep into the soil. Its name, Pascilla, stems from the Hebrew word for Easter. So another association with Easter there. And although, see, this bit isn't related to the UK, but in the Rocky Mountain regions of North America, it was actually considered to be one of four sacred plants. And in Greek mythology, it's said that the flower came into being after Aphrodite, goddess of love, learned of her partner's death and tears became the Pasch. So, I think with a lot of flowers, there's, there's so, so much kind of folklore and, and legend and myths and stories surrounding them. So as with many plants, the pasque flower have various medicinal properties. Traditionally, pasque flowers were used to treat diseases of the eye, including cataracts, and it's thought to be a remedy for conditions involving the nervous system, particularly helping insomnia, nervousness and heart palpitations. It's also an analgesic and as antispasmodic properties and increases venous circulation to induce sweating to help break fevers and it engenders inner strength vitality and stability and there was uh, one study it's quite quite an old study by looks of things uh, wells 1968 looked at 39 sites in england from which the past flowers been recorded in the past and it's now absent there were examined to determine the factors responsible for its extinction at these sites so at 25 of these sites, there was evidence that ploughing was responsible for extinction, while at seven sites, quarrying or building had destroyed the habitat. And at the other seven sites, details of land use were undeterminable. And a study of the population of pulsatilla in chalk grasslands in the Barton Hills in Bedfordshire showed that the proportion of plants which flowered each year diminished by up to 7% after five years' absence of grazing. So they are a flower that actually... They, they kind of need the grazing to take place in, in areas where grazing doesn't happen and uh, other plants and, and that are allowed to kind of grow up and particularly the grasses and that. They, we do tend to lose them from those sites and they are now only found in a handful of sites in the UK and, and I think they're actually on the uh, one of the species in the Back from the Brink project as well. They are, I believe, yeah. So there yeah, we go. They are a bit gaudy though. They're absolutely <laughs> stunning. Uh. 
stunningly beautiful plant. My plant's a bit nice. of a monster, actually. Um, but they are, to see them kind of blowing in the wind on the chalk grasslands, it is absolutely fantastic. I, I do. I went to see them at Devil's Dyke, I think it was a couple of years ago. <laughs> it's funny. You say when they, they form a dorsal plant, sometimes they form like a small bush, don't they? <laughs> the they do, actually, yeah. So so the older the older plants will actually form like this kind of dense bush of pasque flowers, which is amazing. The site yeah. that I've been to, uh, it, it is very much a case of there's there's a couple here and a couple there and you really have to look for them. And the year that I went, they were very dinky, it has to be said. They were rather small, <laughs> but yes. never mind. They were still there. And it's yeah. not an easy site to find either, thankfully. There's no car park, so unless you know where it is, you can't find it. Oh, it's dead easy to find them as I found. <laughs> but there's, uh, it was quite a windy day, I went, to be fair. But it, I say they're gaudy. It's because they look like garden plants, don't they? You know, normally, your wildflowers are like your tiny little version of your, your massive garden plant, whereas they already look like one. <laughs> it's uh, True. so big and big and True. they look like a flower. That's a terrible way of describing it, but it like <laughs> it's a flower yeah. that looks like a like a flower. flower. Yeah, yeah. That's the this is the little tidbits we will come here to learn. <laughs> Pasque flowers look like flowers. There we go. That's my botany level of learning. <laughs> you, you've missed this. Come on, come on. You, you yeah, know have, you've yeah. missed this. Yeah. <laughs> have, yep. Oh, you've you've missed my insightful comments like that. I oh, have well, as well. Yes. I have. Right. Yeah. Well, I also move on to the snake's head fertility which is a far more delicate and lovely flower. Although I've not entirely convinced I've ever seen truly wild. I've seen them growing in the wild and almost certainly been planted in every case. Because I, I don't think... I, there might be some truly wild ones. Oh, well, we'll come to the truly wild bit in a minute. But yeah, they're pretty unmistakable snakes, if Tillery. Um, give them a quick Google if you can't visualise them. Because you'll go, oh, that flower, if you see them. They're basically, they're like hanging bells uh, with a nice sort of checkerboard pattern on them. And they're typically sort of a purpley crimson colour, but you can also get the odd creamy white or um, sort of somewhere between the two. Rather lovely. And you can get all the different garden varieties as well. Uh, but they tend to be those sort of colours anyway. So the scientific name is Fritillaria, and that comes from the Latin fritillus, meaning dice box, uh, which probably refers to the checker pattern on the flowers. And the species name is Melagris. Melagris? Milagris, which means spotted like a guinea fowl, which I think is wonderful. <laughs> Great, isn't um, it? That is. Um, and the common name snake's head refers to the snake-like appearance of the head, especially when it's not quite open. It looks quite snake-like. It's basically like a pointy nose of a snake. And yeah, that's just wonderful. They basically have a long stem which curves over 180 degrees in a long curve. And they just hang there, dangling in the wind. It's all, they are roughly lovely, lovely things. Look very delicate. Um, they're probably fairly delicate, I suppose. But there's other common names. It's the chess flower, obviously, with a checkerboard pattern. Uh, the frog cup. Oh, I wonder, no wonder Vic likes them. Um, checkered lily. I've heard that one, actually. And drooping tulip or dropping tulip. It should be drooping tulip. Yeah, I thought it was, I say it's mm. drooping. T- I have heard drooping yeah. tulip as well. With my dad going, oh, drooping tulips. I'm like, aren't they fertilities? Because I, I need even less plants. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yes. Anyway, suddenly remember that. was rather random. So... The typical habitat is a floodplain meadow. So we're talking like meadows where when in winter when the river level rises, it, they get flooded, basically. And they have to be really old ones because if they've been improved, in inverted commas, they usually don't persist there. Or if they've been ploughed, obviously that's going to really mess everything up. And quite often the best ones haven't been touched for several hundred years other than for sort of harvesting for hay maybe or a bit of grazing. Now... There's a few sites around the country, but they're quite a localised plant. 
Wiltshire is a hot spot, and there's a few, few sites managed by Wiltshire Wildlife Trust. Uh, and one of these sites, rather uniquely for the UK, two-thirds of the population are in the creamy white variety rather than the normal ones. North Meadow near Crickdale has the largest population in the UK, and there are 27 in total of these various wild populations in the UK. There's lots of other sites where they've introduced them and planted them and it's hard to know where and when that's happened, to be fair. But they do reckon that the site North Meadow that I mentioned earlier has approximately 80% of all the UK's population of these fertilities. So it's a very important site. Now, the life cycle of them, they start flowering around mid-April, which is when we're recording this and it should go out soon after. But they only last a few weeks, so you need to visit at exactly the right time almost with these things, one of those very seasonal things. And if you get a nice dewy morning, you can very easily take pictures as good as Vic's <laughs> without any effort whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> I've managed to fill off a reasonable good one. And yeah, uh, you can get some nice pictures though, but do go check out Vic's. You can just rip hers off. That's what I did with my pictures. Fantastic. Um, now, they're very intolerant of grazing and cutting while they're growing so these meadows need to be grazed to keep the grass from getting to, and scrubbing over but only once they're completely finished growing so like later in the summer or certainly very late spring and they do reckon that is part of the reason they're so rare because obviously grazing and cutting managements have changed over the years and if they're cut too early then it can wipe them out basically so the plant itself there's a, a bulb of sorts under the surface and that stays dormant all summer, so it does nothing. And then autumn time, it just starts to grow some roots. And then as winter comes, it goes dormant again. So it's got the roots ready for spring. And it starts to send up a shoot above the surface. And in mature plants, it will then flower. Now, these flowers are quite cool because they have some little... Ref the little checkable patterns has UV reflectors in it effectively like on your uh i think like i think if i was dumbing it down i'd be talking about the reflectors on your bike and stuff like that but a uv level and things like bees can see in uv so that attracts them in especially with it wobbling around in the wind but weirdly the flowers are only fertile for five days so if they don't manage to get fertilized or pollinated by a bee in that time they just flop to the ground and that's it for that year um, if they do get pollinated they do a really cool thing where they stop drooping over and they go dead straight and point upwards and then when the seeds are mature the stem just falls over and of course that gives that a little bit of extra reach for some reason i'm doing the motion with my arm to show you all even though it's a podcast <laughs> <laughs> um now these seeds will obviously spread out a little bit um probably get carried a little bit by flood water if it floods if they drop down on a nice bare patch of earth that usually the flood has eroded out they will then germinate between january and march but only after a frost um, and for the first one to three years they will literally just send up a single leaf from their bulb that's forming underneath three to eight years they start sending up what effectively looks like a normal plant but without the flower on and then they start flowering from about five to eight years and it's quite interesting that if the conditions the year before aren't quite right they won't come up the next year and they'll wait to the year after and then come up now just like with pretty much seasonally pretty much every wildflower that's also popular in a garden in the UK, there's some disagreement as to whether it is truly native or not. Now, the first plant was described in the UK in the 16th century by herbalist John Gerard, who had only known it as a garden plant, and it wasn't recorded in the wild until 1736. So some people have argued that they must be escapees. But the fact that the habitat they're growing in has 
persisted since ancient times as hay meadows and doesn't really easily spread from you know gardens and stuff or other land means that many people think it's a native species and it's just kind of isolated from the rest of the european ones because there's no suitable habitat in between um, and a sea obviously <laughs> but i did read another thing that suggested there was somewhere in Scandinavia where someone introduced some not too long ago and they've spread across the whole habitat. So I think there's still some debate. But I think most people are leaning towards native. But if you're listening, you know, otherwise, please do let us know. Um, that's a great one to put in our feedback. So once upon a time, this plant was abundant across the UK because we had a lot more flood meadows. Uh, Thames Valley, parts of Wiltshire, they were collected in such vast quantities that it could be sold as cut flowers uh, in the markets of London, Oxford and Birmingham. Uh, and during World War II, with this dig for victory, most of the meadows were ploughed up and for, you know, for food crops and stuff. And that's most of the habitat gone then, which is probably why they're, well, is why they're so rare now. And probably what we've done afterwards didn't help either. Um, but they are now a popular garden plant. Lots of people plant them and they come up one year and then that's it. <laughs> now, if you want to go see them in the wild, Oxford, Suffolk and Wiltshire have got some good reserves for them. Um, a lot of them wildlife trust reserves on those. But if you want to plant some in your garden, I have been told the very key thing by a very good gardener, that you must get good quality bulbs. You know, big big chunky ones, not shriveled up ones. Get some big chunky ones and then you should they should, as long as the soil's wet, for some of the year they should be perfectly fine so a uh, good one for a bog garden or edge of a bog garden and there's actually something else is because i actually have them growing in my garden i planted mm. some in my garden and we have them in my parents garden and they are this year they've been absolutely massive they're a huge beautiful display of them as neil mentioned when you know we went through the life cycle they yeah they're really really um susceptible to grazing or in, in our gardens cutting the grass so I get a lot. It's kind of the same with bluebells and snowdrops and everything. Do not be tempted to cut them back once they've flowered. Leave them, let them flower, let them go over, let them take all the nutrients back into the bulb. Wait until those those shoots have all died off before you actually cut them back, because then they've taken everything back in, and they will come back. You know, hopefully the next year. And one of the big mistakes that a lot of gardeners make is they they basically they deadhead and they get rid of all the foliage after they flowered. Well, you're essentially kind of cutting off the nutrient supply to the plant. So if you do want to plant them in your garden and you want to have a successful display of them, eventually it will take some time. Or you can just plant hundreds of bulbs. Yeah, just just let them flower. Let them complete their full flowering and kind of green leaf cycle same as again you would do with snowdrops and also bluebells as well and they'll actually come back stronger the following year and you've been listening to neil and vic's gardening five minute tips <laughs> <laughs> I, I have been doing a lot of work on on gardens recently so um yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, hmm, maybe we should we make that segment <laughs> yes well that's it for our flower info for this or the main topic but I hope you enjoyed it. They're fascinating flowers. I personally prefer the two that are going to be in the next episode, which are the best flower in the UK, which is the wooden enemy, and the seriously overrated but still lovely bluebell. Um, someone said I was opinionated the other day. I think they may have had a point. <laughs> <laughs> really? Me? Opinionated? Never. Never. Never, but, um, ever. Never, never, never. Um, and... 
something I keep meaning to put in to this podcast is recommendations for other podcasts. So I think I'm going to start off with one I should have mentioned in the Ladywood episode, which is uh, Hidden Wings and Bloodlust, which is a podcast literally devoted to just ladybirds. So I should have put it in. So uh, go check that one out. A really lovely host as well. So uh, yeah. There's, I'm going to try and sneak a podcast recommendation into the end of every episode now. So let's see how long that lasts. I'm <laughs> organised enough. But there we go. But I think that's pretty much it from us, isn't it, Vic? I think um, it is. You're back for the next one? I will be back for the next one. Yes, for sure. I'll definitely be doing and, part two of the Spring Flowers. And depending on guests, possibly the next one. Yes. And uh, li- 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 Does it count as a cunning plan if you do it by accident? Because I was thinking about it the other day. Um, then you probably won't come for the next one. But then the one after that is a 50th one, so you have to come back again. So I think I've kind of tricked you into coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not like I'm I'm still here, and yeah. I I probably might be taking a bit of a break for social media um, for a while. But I am still here, and and that, and I will still be doing some episodes. Um, just still trying to work through some stuff. But you know what? I and I do what I actually want to say because I know a few people have actually messaged me, and I just want to say thank you so much for your support. I know. You know, I'm not, I don't really share what's going on in my personal life, but it's been really lovely that a couple of people have just kind of dropped me messages and, and sent yeah. me some lovely messages. So thank you so much for that. I do really appreciate it. Yeah. Someone messaged me and I told you, you're just slacking off and being lazy. That's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, I, yeah. If anyone's interested in what I am filling my time with, since I can't really do any photography right now, I've actually gone mm. back to my drawing and I'm saying this because it's a get back at Neil for the previous comment. Yeah. 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 Um, and I have posted some of my in progress and finished drawings on social media so you can kind of check them out if you want that's right folks not only can she take photos and write a book and sew and craft generally she can also blooming draw it makes you blooming sick is the plot way of putting it (laughs) (laughs) thanks neil (laughs) that's not just my words i've I've, a few people have said that so uh, yes yeah and she's blooming good at it and now wasn't she mutter mutter swearing words etc um yes (laughs) I think we should probably finish it there, actually. That's like a good place yeah. to good place to moan. <laughs> a good place to end, oh dear. Right. Well, um, thanks very much, guys. Uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Oh, one very quick note, and I it's multiple endings, it's tradition with this podcast, isn't it? Um can I apologise in advance to everyone who haven't emailed back? Because I'm so far behind, especially regarding this podcast. I'm trying to get around to you, and people offer to be guests and stuff. We've got quite a list building up, so just bear with us. Bear with us. But we will get back to you. Right. And yeah, I think that's about it really, isn't it? I think so. All right. Well, see you in the next one, guys. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.